Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. I'm on strength field in Topeka, Kansas. And we got the, what is it, the Windler NOV meet coming up here in just a couple weeks. So, oh, yeah. June 15th, if I just created the banner, we'll be ready to rock it. Love so. it. Nice. Uh, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Owner of Extreme Human Performance, creator of the Flex Diet Certification, faculty member of the Kerrigan Institute, a bunch of stuff like that. I'm actually recording this down in Arizona, headed off to see Dr. Brian Walsh talk for two days coming up uh, all day today and all day tomorrow. There you go. Mm, what's the topic? Um, he's, I, I hate to use the word almost functional medicine because that's been such bastardized by like everybody and their brother right now. Yeah. But it's... Uh, if you look at a cell and you look at expanding from there, like what are all the different things the cell needs uh, from you know environment to nutrients to everything else, and then how can you make that kind of practical looking at possibly different blood work and different types of testing. Hmm. Cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. All right, um, everyone, we have a mail-in news episode today because we have actually more than I thought. Uh, Phil, let's, let's start with just um, – Comments or questions from yeah. around the web or strength and muscle sport news. Yeah, we got a couple of them. The first one I'm going to bring up is it's kind of all over the place right now um, as far as news goes, but the West Side versus the World movie. So, oh, yeah, I haven't just, seen that yet. Yeah, somebody asked me if I've seen it yet, and I haven't. I've, it's on my to do list. I just uh, there's so much going on right now. I haven't taken the time to sit down and do it. I've heard it's, I've heard mixed reviews from people that that I know and respect. I think I'll like it. So I've heard good reviews from them. So I mean, but uh, yeah, we'll sit down and watch that here soon. Maybe this weekend. Got a long weekend. So what's the what's the premise of it? Is, is it? I mean, I'm sure it's not just some commercial for West Side kind of thing. No, it's pretty much just it's it's showing what happened at West Side over the last twenty years or whatnot. So a lot of training footage and things like that, oh. and just what it was like to be within Westside. Okay. So, yeah. The only parts I've heard, like negative stuff, is from some of the ladies. Well, I wish you'd have filmed the women more. Well, there's only a couple of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, and when, you, when you're doing a, a deal about the whole gym, and women are 10% of the gym, well, they're probably going to get about 10% of the show. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. So, um, but we'll see. I can't comment on that really because I haven't seen it yet. But. Uh, I heard it's pretty good, but uh, so we'll go. It's kind of the first one about it too. That's like kind of one of those areas you think there would be more documentaries yeah. about because it's. I mean, everybody's heard stories from West Side and Louis being Louis, you know. <laughs> it's so. true. Well, yeah, we'll check in once you um, once you watch it, I guess. Yeah. So um, the next one is proper recovery is one of the pillars that a great strength athlete stands upon. What are some of your favorites, opinions on recovery methods, massage, Epsom salt baths, cold immersion therapy, kinesio, rock tape, etc. Oh, we did a whole episode uh, on that once. Yeah. Yeah. We did a whole episode. On that. I mean, I'll just give my basic thoughts. And part of it's active recovery. Uh, don't just be a sloth. Get out and move around. And that seems to get me recovered the best. Like if I have a hard squat day, if I go out and just do stuff the next day, I'm not talking hard things, but move around, be active, do some work. Um, and if I could in a perfect role, I'd get a massage every day. So yes. when I lived in Thailand, after every training session, I'd go get a massage. Did and, you? You uh, bastard. It was a, yeah, it cost like 38 cents. So, <laughs> <laughs> was like, wow. Was, you know, it was less than a dollar. So uh, I was like, I'd go get a massage every Every after every single training session, I take a shower, then get a massage. So I have never and, had one in my life. Uh, what? Never. I am uh, such a ball of scar tissue, and I'm. I, oh my gosh! I, I can only imagine what someone like you know Keith Scheiman or someone would be like, dude. I can barely even. <laughs> yeah, I'm know. in dire need. I haven't had one in a couple of years. But, I mean, <laughs> oh wow! If I had the ability, I would go. Like I said, after every session, it's such. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. 
and maybe just for the relaxation part of it. Oh, for sure. I'm not talking just therapeutic massage, the where they dig in hard, but just a even a relaxing massage can I think can have huge benefits. So um, that that's my take. So what about you, Mike? Uh, yeah, I mean, if I had a choice, I would do, and I do this sometimes after seminars. I wasn't able to do it uh, last week, but uh, I have someone look and see if there's a float tank nearby. So you basically have huge, massive amounts of Epsom salt in a tank that's at body temperature, and you kind of hang out there. It's pitch black, and just I usually do some meditation type stuff in there, some other things, and then. If I can, some of the places will actually have a massage chair or a massage therapist there also. So I'll go in, like the one place in uh, Austin has that, Zero Gravity. Get a massage, they'll put you in the little chair for a while, you'll go to the tank, and then you know two hours later you come out of there just super relaxed. Um, obviously not sustainable for daily use or weekly use, possibly due to cost and time. Um, the other thing I'm looking at is probably next week once I'm back home, We'll actually have a freezer outside, and then we'll cock that and use that for cold water immersion. That's a cheap way of doing that. Um, pretty interesting data on that. Like, I'll just highlight one study super quick that I'm always kind of, I don't know if I buy all these things that completely blunt uh, strength and hypertrophy, just because the stimulus, if you do it right, is such a massive impetus for your body to change. Um, but there's a super interesting study on post-exercise cold water immersion attenuates acute anabolic signaling and actually long-term adaptations in muscle and strength. Huh. Uh, the main author of this is Leon Roberts, and most of these guys are from, looks like, Norway and New Zealand. And the short version is they did actually compare cold water immersion to an active recovery, which a lot of the studies before had not. And they looked at muscle mass and strength after 12 weeks of strength training. So, you know, for a chronic study, 12 weeks is pretty long. And they did show that it uh, did change some of the acute activation, which other studies have shown. And it did actually blunt hypertrophy by quite a bit. Hmm. Now, quite a bit was not massive. I think we're still only talking about, like, I'd have to look up the exact number, like two pounds or something like that. But it was pretty significant. Um, you two know, pounds especially over 12 weeks a lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, so if you if you look at it and go by the sheer number, you're like, well, that's not that much. But, man, compared to the placebo group, it was very significant, like much higher of an effect size than I would have ever imagined. Um, very well done study, and they used, I think, 50 degrees Fahrenheit for 10 or 20 minutes. So it wasn't anything super crazy either. Um, the other caveat, too, is they did it immediately after training. So we don't know if you wait an hour or two hours 24 hours, um, if you're going to get a different result. Um, but, yeah, that's one of the best studies on that that I've seen. Interesting stuff. Yeah, I wonder, because of the timing of that, how related, like what, you know, with blood right. flow versus just temperature and enzyme activity or, you know, like uh, specific mechanisms and stuff we need to look at, I guess. Yeah, and they did that. They looked at satellite cells by NCAM. They looked at uh, PAC-7 plus cells and... It appears it reduces the satellite cell activation that you normally see. Um, I don't think they looked at too many of inflammation markers, but that's usually the other one impaired. Yeah, yeah. They looked at some of the anabolic ones too, like the P70S6 kinase P7 and those mTOR markers right, of that yeah. family. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Um, one last one here uh, from Michael. He has a question of recovery as well. But he's doing a linear periodization program, basically strength training three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. He's starting to do CrossFit twice a week for a fun conditioning element to my training. His strength sessions are priority over his conditioning. Is he better off doing these the same day as my strength session and having days completely off or doing them on off days like Tuesday, Thursday, the CrossFit conditioning, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the strength training? Just curious if it would make a difference in milking linear progression longer. I wonder what, what amount of time separates the two sessions, you know? Yeah, and how hard how hard these... Yeah, what is uh, Like, I've seen some CrossFit that's that's uh, expecting you to go 105%. Yes. So right. if you're doing that plus strength training, then I would say same day and take some time off. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I would, would I'm actually... Choice. Yeah, I, I sometimes I think that it's... 
if you're going to do a lot of conditioning and that sort of stuff, don't expect maximum strength and size gains. Mm-hmm. Especially like you're saying, if you're expending a lot of your resources with 105% efforts, you know. Yes. Yep. So. I mean, because you're basically just going hard out, especially if you're saying your strength is – I'm guessing that your strength sessions are very hard because they're your priority. So <laughs> right, yeah. if you're doing those very hard, then doing your conditioning very hard is probably not a good idea. If you're one of those people – like I'm, I've tried the everyday week thing. I'm not wired for it mm. because I'm wired. If I'm training, I'm training. If that makes sense. So I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go like seven days a week and just go at like 70%. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. 70% turns into, 70% turns 100% really fast, and then I'm fried. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm better off taking days off. And But I mean, that doesn't mean on off days I don't go, like I just bought a new bike. So we're going to go bike riding with the kids and stuff like that. But that's, I'm not going to be out there like, I got you. And, you know, telling my kids I kicked their ass because I beat them up the hill. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, go yeah, we're gonna go for a leisurely bike ride, you know. <laughs> so stuff like that can aid in recovery and, and things like that. But if you're going hard out five days a week, I think a lot of people miss the boat and they train too hard too often. Yeah, so, yeah, it's just uh, too much expenditure of your resources, you know, <clears throat> nutri- nutrient storage and and you know the stress hormones that you would kick up. I mean, sounds like what you're saying, Phil. Is, I mean, with the biking and stuff, that's almost like you just out with the yard work and stuff it's just yeah. sort of a real almost a lighter just general aerobic base kind of thing yeah. as opposed to serious conditioning work yeah literally i'm pedaling and looking at birds and trees and stuff yeah you know? <laughs> <So>. yeah <laughs> but yeah. i mean i think it, it can be either way i mean my bias personally and i've got clients that are both i'd say similar to phil and actually similar to myself i'll run a more eustress model with as high frequency as i can but you have to modulate the intensity of the session. And then I think you also have to modulate what are even your main goals within strength training, right? So I just added more <clears throat> axle work for a competition. I'm just, you're just participating in Finland for fun. And so now my goal is, okay, how many days of the week can I just pick up 215 double overhand on an axle for three to six reps? You know, and last week, excluding travel, I got four days. Hmm. You know, I know if I can slowly increase that weekly volume over time, I'm going to make progress. But I'm also not doing a lot of very intense, you know, close to 1RM type stuff either. I know if I can stay in the 3 to 5 rep range and I can do it with the high frequency, I can usually get pretty good gains from that. But some people, like you know, Phil was saying, you have to go with a little bit higher intensity depending on your goals and what you know transfers for you also. So I I find that it can be very individual, but you kind of have to pick one direction or the other. Most people try to do the high frequency, and like Phil said, they just all of a sudden get really intense about all their training, and then it just implodes after a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's it's a personality type, you know. It is. Yeah. You have to be good at holding the throttle back if you're going to go frequent. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. My bias has always been maybe it's that bodybuilder thinking, but you know what what we would call intensity techniques but you know negatives and stuff like that just like get good and sore you know like i always kind of joke tissue assassin kind of thing and then just eat sit on my butt and, yep. rat, and, and yep. grow kind of but you know because there's a lot of those earlier studies we've talked about in years past some of them were military studies where they were looking at hypertrophy gains right strength and size gains and how there's more than one study suggesting how they're blunted if you do a ton of conditioning stuff you know, yeah. Um, so yeah, especially if you go immediately after and you go into low to moderate intensity cardio, right? So the forty to fifty percent of VO two max on a treadmill for forty minutes immediately after strength training, I have pretty much everybody avoid that. But then they take it too far and they're like, "Oh, you're telling me I can't walk around afterwards?" I'm like, "No, I'm not telling you you can't walk and move." <laughs> Just you know, kind of stay out of that middle zone. Do that the next morning if you have to. Yeah, mm-hmm. just don't get on a stepper. Yeah. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's it. All right, Mike. Um, news or any thoughts from you? Yeah. So um, a while back, I was presenting a Paleo FX, and I'm always interested just to see what kind of the trends are in the industry per se, because a lot of times I don't poke my head out of the sand all that all that often to see what's going on amen um, besides a whole bunch of stuff on cbd which i talked about already 
Uh, keto was still super popular. And I saw this a couple of years ago, starting probably two, three years ago, like a bunch of stuff on red light therapy. So we've had like uh, near infrared saunas for a while. And now you can actually buy these big panels of like red and near infrared light. And at first, my gut response is always like, oh God, what, what other trend is this? This seems insane. Um, but I remember seeing some talks, even at ISCN, uh, International Society of Clinical Neuroscience, last year and the year before on photobiomodulation, which is the fancy word for it, or low level laser therapy. And it was pretty interesting. And I just spent some more time recently reading a bunch of the studies. I've only gotten through probably maybe a dozen studies. And there, I think, might actually be something to that. Uh, it's still pretty preliminary. We don't know the exact dosage. We don't know if you need to do it before or after. But as far as I can piece together, if you've got both red light and near infrared, that possibly doing it three to six hours before exercise uh, may help with uh, performance and possibly even recovery after that session. So that's something I'm going to look more into and may end up uh, buying one and testing it out and see what happens with that. You so know, Mike, uh, that's odd. That sounds weird to me because a lot of the stuff with like this, the, the, well, the screen redners and all that, I thought red light was mm-hmm. a photo signal to calm you down and make you more sedate. Right, like it's blue awesome. light wake is wakeful, and red light is more noodle down kind of thing. Yeah, and that has to do with the actual visible portion of the spectrum. Um, so here they're looking at a couple different specific nanometers, like in the six hundred and eight hundred range. Um, so the red light you're thinking of is most likely just exposure with the color portion, right? Just visible, yeah. Yeah, and that's true that because the red and the orange has less blue light, it's absolutely less stimulatory. Having those for your main lights in the evening, I find, definitely makes a big difference. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so with this, basically, in short, what they're trying to do is uh, excite the uh, cytochrome C oxidase on the specific complex of the mitochondria by jamming more photons through it. So it in theory, increases ATP and kicks off a bunch of other reactions, possibly limiting inflammation, different things like that. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I'll report later and see if there's any any difference to it, and I'll keep reading and yeah, let everybody know. Downside is the light panels right now are pretty darn expensive, but they've come down dramatically in price even just over the last two years. So I would imagine in a couple of years they'll be a lot more affordable too. Yeah. Now, I, all right, I'm pulling it together here, so forgive me if I'm being sick. <laughs> but the um, the the near infrared stuff, we're not talking about shining it and looking at it, and this is all being optical. This is directly against a, a yeah. target tissue, so, right? Yep. So you kind of have this light panel, and you stand in front of it, half or mostly buck naked. And the different ones have different penetration depths. And so if I remember right, and I could get this wrong, someone will correct me, I'm sure. But I think the higher frequency is a little bit more penetration depth, uh, which to me seems backwards because usually it goes the other way. Yeah. Uh, And you're actually trying to hit the muscle. So like in a lot of the studies, they had to do this with older technology that was very expensive. And they'd take these diodes and make these little spots of light, and they would put them together in an array and then they would jam that like pretty darn close within inches to the muscle either before, during, or after exercise. And then they would make them like brutally sore, like the old school, you know, eccentric contractions at the elbows, and then look at different changes with that. And the actual pretty good studies, the randomized controls models that use a sham, Eh, the data is like all over the place. Like some of those were just not as positive as what we would think, or at least in the lay media appears. Um, but some of them on the higher power end, and now you're actually getting devices that can put out a little bit more power, so you don't have to use them as long. And some of those were potentially positive. Um, and I'm always just fascinated by that because it's not necessarily we think of nutrition right we think of calories we think of all these other things and i think we've probably kind of overlooked just the impact of light on recovery and maybe getting direct 
specific red light therapy. It's called photobiomodulation. In specific frequencies at specific powers uh, might be beneficial um, in terms of creating more ATP and helping performance. And the other part, too, is it's obviously not going to be banned by water or anybody else because I don't even know how you would test for it. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I would be interested in in terms of, especially took in too many light rays. Athletes. Yeah, that are timed in terms of their performance. You know, are they using it and seeing any difference with it? Right. Mm. It's just so trippy that it's almost like um, feeding cells through a non-nutrient blood flow kind of route. You know, like it's yeah. it's completely mm -hmm. like stimulate your electron transport chain, but not through anything you've ingested. It's so weird, mm -hmm. you know. Right, yeah. which, you know, I've heard about it for probably almost four years now, and I kept thinking, these guys are all a bunch of cuckoos. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. like, what? Just light? And that, but when you look at it, I'm like, wow, there's pretty good data, at least on the mechanism. And there's much more published literature on it than I thought. Again, the downside is... <laughs> Timing, amounts, dosage, frequency. You know, I always think of, like, carbohydrates, you know. Christ, the Bergstrom needle was invented over, what, five-plus decades ago now? Oh, I'm sure, We're yeah. We're still arguing about what is the best way to use carbohydrates. <laughs> yeah. So probably not going to have any simple answers anytime soon. Well, I'm glad you're looking at the legitimate literature because there's a lot of stuff that that I think weight trainers get bombarded with, that, including stuff like the paleo diet. Like there's a lot of legitimate yeah. body of literature from anthropologists and things like that and, you know, um, fossilized fecal samples and all this kind sure. of stuff, stomach contents, and, and that's not what a lot of the crap that you see online is based on. It's not the legitimate side in my opinion right it's always some how can we take an aspect or a hook a reader hook a listener hook and get people excited about my version of paleo and you know and this sounds similar in that way that there's a real body of literature and we need somebody with a some scientific acumen to actually see what's real be open-minded but not so open-minded your brain falls out and you just jump on board yeah yeah because you know I don't know if listeners know, but when I did my master's, I actually did it on um, microwave transmissions. So I took a big model of a monkey head and stuck him in front of a big microwave transmitter. And I spent <laughs> a year and a half modeling blood flow and, and deep tissue heating and all that kind of stuff. So, right. yeah. Yeah. Part of it's giving me a little bit of flashbacks to things I didn't want to think about again, though. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh there are a couple of things I thought you guys could comment on here. This first, this is a male, and this is going to probably lead to a whole episode. So we got this from Ethan. He said, uh, hey guys, let me start off by saying how much I enjoy listening to the show. I've been listening since 2013, and Iron Radio has really shaped the vast majority of how I train. As far as the topic I was hoping to get you guys to discuss, and just sidebar here, everybody, we're not going to do it right now except uh, maybe a comment or two we'll, we'll get to a, a whole show probably i wanted to preface it by recognizing the fact that almost all lifters are looking for a way to get a competitive edge on uh one of the legal ways available today is the use of sarms so selective uh androgen receptor modulators i know you guys are all natural and want to shrug off this topic <laughs> But the show has always done such a good job of educating lifters on what's out there so we can make smart decisions on how we train. Like it or not, I'm sure a lot of listeners have researched the effects of SARMs and found a lot of conflicting reports on the web. If we could get you guys to cut through some of the crap so that we can make educated decisions on whether it's worth the risk, I think it would be beneficial to our lifting society at large. Thanks again, Ethan. Um, quick comment for here's my salty dog comment for for you, Ethan, and we'll talk about this because a paper came out this year, um, a massive paper by was it Solomon I think, and uh, sort of trying to gather together what the legitimate body of science knows about SARMs. But my bias from a lifter's perspective is this smells like the um, pro steroid pro hormone. Um, generation when that happened in other words a lot of this stuff is you know they're not approved for any specific medical use by the fda you know they still have a lot of researchy kinds of names like combinations of letters and numbers you know these sort of code names for everything um 
and the risk with this kind of stuff is some could work well some probably do uh, some could be more side effects than they are the main effect that you're looking for like hypertrophy you know i mean there's a lot of you could accidentally end up um with some kind of weird cascade uh at least in the pro hormone era you know all these designer mm-hmm. drugs were popping up and, and they could be more estrogenic whoops you know or yeah. or have other toxic for orals right hepatotoxic in fact one of our news bits is about that so um but it's neat to look at and i agree with you ethan i would be i would be intrigued by this kind of stuff you know like yeah. if, if there's a way to instead of i mean if you think about how endocrinology works if you've got the hormone right secreted by your gonads uh, that's the key well you also got the lock right on the receptor side and what if you made the lock more sensitive to the you know, without increasing the number of keys, you know, so modulating the receptor side is a really cool idea. And I think some of it's promising. I think some of this stemmed out of um, tri- actually estrogen receptor modulators where they were trying to look at breast cancer and, and that kind of stuff. And I think they hold promise, like maybe lower side effects and that kind of thing, but w- we, we will address it. But I thought each one of us might want to talk about it. I mean, Phil, are your people ever interested in this stuff or yeah, I think we'll t- like you said. I think this is a good one to talk about more. And I think I don't know. I'd like to address this thing. I think we do a good job of talking about stuff. We just don't, don't put it at the forefront because, like we've talked about before, it's it's too many times people just think just that. And there's like like people yeah. talk to Ed Cohen, and the only thing they think about is well, he didn't pass a drug test. So you know, there's a lot of good information to grab besides that from people. So yeah. <laughs> I think we do a good job of covering both. But, yeah, I think, um, like you touched upon, if anybody doesn't remember the pro-steroid era, holy yeah. crap. That was, <laughs> that was so bad. Yeah. They were, they were punching out stuff weekly just to stay ahead of the laws that yes. was less than safe. <laughs> I right. mean, and, like, with my athletes, yeah, I, I don't know. I almost posted this a while back. But if you're not a strength coach at a high level, if you're a strength coach at a high level – and you never have to talk about performance-enhancing drugs, mm. you're not a strength coach at a high level. Yeah. <laughs> That's just a fact today. Yep. So, But I, I always lean towards, let's be safe about this. There are, there are things out there that have years and years and years of research yeah. behind them that we know what they do on good and bad. So <laughs> I would rather be informed of, okay, we know exactly what the side effects are you know, because this thing's been out for 30 years. Um, type of thing. But yeah, I, I do. I think it's interesting, and I think a lot needs to be played out. Yeah. So. Um, Mike, before, because um, I know you've probably got some thoughts on this. I think you're probably better read on this than I am, but um, I would suggest, Ethan, you or any listeners that are interested in SARMs, we had Jerry Brainum on the show, um, I don't know, a couple of months ago, and he has an online video that it actually gets circulated a lot on this. And uh, Jerry's on the ball. You know, I, he, he's going to share a lot of thoughts and opinions and about some of the, I think he's talking about like scumbag websites that are trying to cash in and sell these things. And of course, because they're not regulated drugs or they don't have any specific, um, approved purpose. I mean, are you getting real ones? Are you getting fake ones? Are you getting, um, dirty ones? You know, but Jerry Branham has a good like 20 or 30 minute video. If you're aching, uh, I watched it, um, not that I don't trust him, but obviously before I recommend something. And I think it's a good place to start. So I would go just look on YouTube for Jerry Branham uh, and his video on SARMs. But but what about you, Mike? Yeah. I mean, I can agree with you guys. I mean, I'll go back and read a bunch of stuff before the show because I haven't really mm-hmm. read too much on that in the past year or two, to be perfectly honest. Um, I agree with Phil. I mean, it's... I mean, I even get questions on that once in a while because SARMs, in terms of detection, are debatable and that gets into a whole another ethical question and everything else. But just my gut level, I'm like, oh. Every time we try to use some type of brand new pharmaceutical, especially in a new category, we just don't know what other things it's doing. And historically, there's almost always something else it's doing. And that may even be the main mode of, of activation. Right, so when I worked in the cardiology uh, device company, I would meet with a lot of uh, cardiologists and electrophysiologists. And even 10 years ago, like most of them agreed that statins, lower cholesterol, is probably a byproduct. They're probably modifying vessel inflammation, and that's how they have an effect. Um, even like 
metformin now has been around for freaking how long? And there's a study that's like, well, maybe it's interacting because of some effects of gut changes and things of that nature in addition to effects on the liver. Oh, but maybe it's something else. And that's a pretty old drug that's been given in Mm -hmm. millions of doses. And we're not 100% sure what it's really doing. We know it's probably safe, you know, especially if you're diabetic. So stuff like that always kind of pops into my head and... You know, we have other things that you know are probably considered illegal by your organization that we have much better data on and have a really good idea of what's going on with them. You know, so that gets into a very interesting discussion that I'm sure we'll have about you know what is your risk reward. You know, some right. of these things may not show up in testing, but who knows really what they're doing? And like you said, Lonnie, who knows what you're even getting? Like, how would you know? Right. You know, so that's. The whole nother can of worms. It's not like the FDA is going to, you know, uh, raid them and take their stuff right. because, oh, you said it's this and <laughs> it's really that. Purity. Oh, you're good. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, to your point, Mike, here's a quote from the Solomon paper. I don't want to get into it too much, but it says, the androgen receptor belongs to a super family of steroid hormone nuclear receptors. The effects of the interaction between the androgen receptor and androgens themselves are complex and varies depending on sex, age, tissue type, and hormone status. So yeah. how, you know, you're talking about juggling a whole lot of stuff, and we're back to, you know, bodybuilders and powerlifters guinea-pigging themselves. But the idea of wringing more value out of the amount of testosterone that you have in your body already, that's fascinating to me. I mean, it's still oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, but yeah, we'll give it we'll give it some attention, Ethan. And and you know what, Phil, good point. He because he says, Ethan says, you, I know you guys will cut through the crap. We always cut through the crap. I mean, mm-hmm. at no point do we ever judge. It's right. I mean, yeah. I think that's been one of our founding things. Yeah. I mean, the the minute that you start getting preachy, if I hear something like that, me personally, I turn it off. You know, uh, yeah. the just say no mentality doesn't work. People need knowledge. And they yeah. don't need judged, you yeah. know. So, anyway, good stuff, interesting stuff. I'll tell you what. Okay, let's go to break because I've got a couple of more papers here. Um, if you're deciding whether to tune us out, we got stuff coming here on processed foods. There was a paper all over the web about how processed foods are more fattening. There's some stuff on caffeine users, regular caffeine users, and um, weird effects of gut hormones. Uh, depending on what kind of carbs you eat. So we'll be back in a little bit. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or... Who knows what? Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. 
Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everyone, we're back. Uh, it's Mike and Phil and Lonnie, and we're talking um, news, really, science news that might affect lifters. You know what? Um, let me start with one that I just stumbled on uh, because we were just talking about strength athletes guinea-pigging themselves. Uh, I don't know. I, I find this irritating. <laughs> I, I It's my bias, but... I feel like we're back on the bandwagon trying to demonize things and over-extrapolate. Um, it's a study by uh, Stolz, S-T-O-L-Z, and colleagues. It's brand new um, from the journal Elementary Pharmacology and Therapy. Um, severe and protracted cholestasis in 44 young men taking bodybuilding supplements. Assessment of genetic, clinical, and chemical risk factors. Now, what jumped out to me about this is there are authors on this, like jumping on this from all over the country, Southern California, Philadelphia, North Carolina, Michigan. Um, here's the, the background statement. And again, this is, I, this is why I'm kind of raising an eyebrow because at no point in this abstract do they say what supplements. They're just talking mm. about bodybuilding supplements like they're one Thing. And we've all met people <laughs> like that. Like like all bodybuilding supplements are anadrol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and we, we all know that's not true. The background statement, though, and I'm not saying what they're saying is false. I just don't like the way that they're, uh, you know, overgeneralizing maybe. Bodybuilding supplements can cause profound cholestatic syndrome. That's the first sentence. Well, my God, what kind of bodybuilding supplements? You know, can you, can you be a little more specific than yeah. that? Um, Please be more vague. <laughs> and this is peer-reviewed. This is in the literature. The uh, aim to describe the drug-induced liver injury network's experience uh, due to bodybuilding supplements. And again, just bodybuilding supplements. I, I don't. I don't know what that means. I mean, Jesus. There's everything from nutrients to you know. We just talked about receptor modulators to who knows what. But it says 44 males, age 33 years average. Developed liver injury with a medium latency of 73 days. 41% presented with hepatocellular pattern of liver injury as defined by this. It's a ratio of liver enzymes. The typical, you know, ALT, alkaline phosphatase. Yeah. Liver biopsy, 59% of subjects. Demonstrated mild uh, hepatitis and profound Mm. cholestasis, um, mostly without bile duct injury. Uh, in some, chemical analyses revealed anabolic steroid-controlled substances were in the product but not listed on the label. And then they concluded, patients with bodybuilding supplement liver injury uniformly present with cholestatic injury, which slowly resolves. The ingested products often contain anabolic steroids. So, I don't know. This, what the hell? <laughs> now... I wish I could pull the full paper, but it's behind a paywall, and we both. I'm not going to go dig for it. I could probably mm-hmm. get it through the university somehow too. But damn it, it the, the details should be in the abstract, at least enough so you know what they're talking yeah, what about. Compound, right? What kind of product? Do you mean mm-hmm. SARMs? Do because if it was SARMs, I okay, that's very thematic with what we're talking about, and that could be quite possible. We were just talking about how they're not regulated at all, you know. But I mean. Jesus, creatine, protein, uh, botanicals. You could go down this massive, massive list of thousands of products, and they just keep saying bodybuilding supplements. And it just feels like, uh, to me, again, this is my initial gut reaction. This is my bias that, you know, let's point a fake finger at those dirty strength athletes, you know, kind of thing, and and their, their silly meathead attraction to dangerous, contaminated supplements. You know, it sounds like they may even be considering that they took things that are illegal, possibly too. I wasn't even sure mm-hmm. by what you listed if it was legal or illegal, and you know, obviously then you get into you know oral anabolics and things of that nature. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would let's put it this way, to be fair as possible. Uh, listeners, please go look. It may be that I'm missing something in this abstract, but S-T-O-L-Z, Stoles and colleagues, and there are a dozen uh, people on this paper from all over the country. Uh, it's a tw- May, you know May 2019. It's now, um, yeah. and it, it just the, the vagary uh, sits badly with me. Can you please be a little more specific? You know, that's like saying I don't know. Food does something. It's like, okay, what kind of food? And, you know, in what amounts and when or uh, what brand? You know, I, I, it really leaves me wanting. And I think as far as an abstract goes, I, I'm surprised that the, um, you know, this got through peer review with nobody saying, can you please specify what you mean by bodybuilding supplement? Maybe they don't want to use the brand name. Maybe there's a good reason why they're not saying it. I don't know, but. It says here many of the supplements, according to the study, were found to include anabolic steroids and aren't listed on the ingredients. Right. But, again, I had to pull the full study to see what was going on with it. Right. Like we we were just saying, the FDA is not going to allow that (laughs) Mm -hmm. for very long. I mean, I know they're constantly chasing these fly-by-night companies, but um, it's just the broad way they use the term. And you know what I mean? And there is, of course, like this confirmation type bias you know this group bias like let's get on the bandwagon and and talk about how dangerous and reckless these guinea pigging strength athletes are kind of thing and i i wonder if some of that is involved so i'm yeah we'll have to dig into this some more but i don't know it just feels like we're we're regressing you know back 20 years ago where yeah supplements were just bad and somehow you know Mm-hmm. PEDs. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But even then, if something was contaminated, I mean, the amount that it would be contaminated by, obviously, clearly enough, you could pop for a drug test. But a high enough amount to affect the liver and things of that nature, you're talking like a completely different dose. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I'm just <laughs> hoping, because I can't even tell with this broad list of authors from all over the U.S., um, what class of supplements are we talking about, or is this regional? You know, were these, and again, I'm sure the details were in there, like, you know, these were bought off the shelves in Southern California or something like that. But I, it, the abstract just leaves me wanting to such an extent that, you know, it, it, it feels to me like they just wanted to get that title out there, like, oh, bodybuilding supplements cause liver damage. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I got the full study here. We can. I'll send it to you guys okay. and we'll talk about it next time. That but, sounds good. Thank you, man. Yeah. One thing in the discussion briefly they said is that uh, injuries in these 44 patients are consistent with prior observations of those exposed to anabolic steroids, including 17-alpha ketolation. Sure. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, maybe we'll talk about it in a future show. Well, you know, supplements contaminated with 17-alpha alkylated, you know, steroids – Okay, we've heard about that kind of stuff before, yeah. but honestly, and Phil will probably snicker at this, but there's mm-hmm. probably a bunch of athletes who would like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, you mean there's there's well, D ball like... in my in protein powder? <laughs> oh, that's a shame. It would be flying off the shelf. <laughs> um, no, and that's like somebody posted an article the other day. They did some uh, there's some clinical test in in Russia where they interviewed twelve thousand bodybuilders, people to go to the gym, and they found out like. That sixty percent were taking performance enhancing drugs, and like eighty five percent of them were taking them and were aware of the potential health effects. Or yeah, and people were like, oh my god, they're still taking them. I was like, good, at least they know. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're educated. Want and to they be st- dumb about yeah, it? Yeah. It's like, oh, I didn't know that. Oh well, then oh, you're just a victim. You know, no, at least he's fucking smart enough to look into it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, like Mike was saying earlier, like that risk to benefit ratio, that's going to be true of anything. Yeah, oh, exactly. yeah. Water. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> at least, yeah, and that's what I'm talking about. At least they're not just blindly, okay, I'll take it. You know, at least they took the time to look into it. Right. And most people don't even do that when, uh, God, I don't know how many people I deal with that the doctor gives them something. I'm like, you realize the side effects of that? No. Yeah. Well, the damn label. Right. Take <laughs> some know? responsibility yourself, right? Yeah. 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 So. Okay. Well, thanks, Mike, for, for pulling that so fast. And w- w- we could talk about it next time. Maybe there's some yeah, yeah. tidbits. I, I think the fact remains, though, that the abstract that's not behind a paywall, I 
I don't. I, I do think the full paper's behind a paywall, unless you're someone like Doctor Mike Nelson. But it, I just, it doesn't provide enough. Like the abstract should be more specific for it to be useful. I think, uh, at least to our population. So. Yeah, and I'm trying to figure out just from reading the full study real quickly, and it's not super clear in there either. So. <laughs> yeah. Which begs the question: Why all these uh, scientists from all over the country, this huge author list, jumped on it? And I'm looking at this big, bold title about severe protracted liver injury and bodybuilders, you know. It's like, why? what's your motivation to, to do that? I mean, if it's one brand of fly-by-night product from one company, then say it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, this next one was all over the news. In fact, a student sent me this, and then um, actually from another source, somebody else brought it up. So... This is a paper by Hall and colleagues. The title will get your attention. It's ultra-processed diets cause excess calorie intake and weight gain. An inpatient, randomized, controlled trial of ad libitum food intake. So at-will food intake. Here's the just brief of this. This has appeared uh, very recently here um, in the journal Cell Metabolism. It says, Hall and colleagues investigated 20 inpatients, so they actually had them live in like a metabolic ward. This was tightly controlled, it looks like to me, who are exposed to ultra-processed diets versus unprocessed diets for 14 days each in a random order. The ultra-processed diet caused an increase in ad libitum, or like, you know, self-chosen calorie intake and weight gain, despite, and here's the kicker, Despite being matched to the unprocessed diet for calories, sugar, fat, sodium, fiber, and all the macronutrients. So the only difference seems to be that it's highly processed. So I'd like to dig into the methodology of this one a little bit more. But essentially, um, the ad libitum, right, the per-person intake on the highly refined diet, so think like, you know, Big Macs and shakes kind of thing, was 500 calories a day more on the ultra-processed diet versus the more whole foods kind of diet. Um, when you go pull the actual paper, the abstract only offers a little bit more. I just printed the first page here, but essentially they had 20 weight-stable adults. Subjects were admitted to the NIH Clinical Center. And then they were randomized to either be fed an ultra-processed or an unprocessed diet for two weeks, followed by the other diet uh, immediately after for two weeks. So the meals were designed to be matched for calories, energy density, macronutrients, right, protein, carbon, fat, sugar, sodium, uh, and fiber. Uh, Subjects were instructed to consume as much or as little as they desired. Uh, Here's some details. Increased on the... Uh, highly processed diet, increased consumption of carbohydrates, 280 extra calories a day, and fats, 230 extra calories a day. So similarly, just you know, wanting to just munch on more carbs and fats, but it says not protein. So it did not stimulate uh, a desire to eat more protein, just fats and carbs. The participants uh, on the processed diet gained about a kilogram, uh, and the unprocessed kind of diet uh, lost about a kilogram so one went up two or three pounds one went down two or three pounds over this two-week period Um, i just think it's fascinating right because it does it sort of cracks it doesn't punch a big hole but it kind of cracks the uh, a new leak in the idea that calories are the end all be all because (laughs) these they matched them on all these things i think what they did was almost like Mm -hmm. dose them like here's your meals Here's your Big Mac and fries and shake meal versus here's your vegetables and lean meat meal or whatever. They were matched on the macros, but then they let people just go eat whatever else they wanted. Uh, That's the way I'm interpreting this. Yeah. It it gives a big kick in the butt to the if it fits your macros type of group. But, um, I mean, just for – I'm a total layman on this subject compared to somebody like you. But, I mean, it makes sense to me. I mean, it's like basically you're taking a food that's basically – like a whey versus a hydrolyzed whey. You've got some com- uh, food that's just been beat to shit and essentially yeah. pre-digested. It's pre-digested yeah. and easily taken in and assimilated by the body compared to something your body has to actually work on. Work for, yeah. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. like broccoli compared to like broccoli that's been pulverized and powdered. 
you know, it's yeah. gonna it's gonna be different. So right, a whole potato versus French fries, you know, yes. um, stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, and I'd have to look at the study again to be 100% sure on this, but I think the micronutrients may have been a little bit different. So I think they tried to only match for, like, as you mentioned, the main macros and sugar and fiber, mm-hmm. but I think yeah. the micronutrients were different. I'd have to double-check that. I would think and, and I, so, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and I don't believe they controlled for movement either, right? So people forget that what mm-hmm. you eat is going to – and everybody's done this, right? You kind of overeat on sometimes foods that aren't maybe the greatest high quality. And most people are probably not going to go like run around and do a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's like you start eating more, you know, vegetables and micronutrients and other things. You're like, oh, yeah, I, I feel better. And you just, I think, unconsciously probably move around more. Like Levine showed that study with uh, a yeah. thousand calorie overfeeding for eight weeks. Some people just by caloric excess, they just start moving around and do stuff. You know, other people. Yeah. Not so much, right? So the the quality of what you eat probably is going to affect the energy output also, too, in addition to the amount. Now, to be fair, I mean, they did live in this metabolic ward. And so I got to think they didn't, you know, let one group go off to the gym in the afternoon or something like that. Exactly. It would be neat. Yeah, it would be not formal exercise, correct. Right, yeah. Well, and that's where we get in. It gets muddy. Like I've talked about this before on the show. Like, sure, all these processed foods and the, the easeability to have them and eat copious amounts is bad for the general population. But it has done amazing things for athletes. I oh, mean, sure. with, with, without, without this kind of food that we have now, you wouldn't have like 400 pound NFL linemen running four five forties. That could be <laughs> true. Yeah. Yeah. Massive amounts of easily food, Yep, you know, and things like that. So you're seeing these freak huge people that like, if they were trying to do that on, leg of lamb and cabbage (laughs) right it doesn't work right so like even the strong men on what you do what are you doing with those calories you know right yeah it does it is a neat it's twisted that's like the the phil stevens rule like the twisted it the dark side the opportunity of of a highly processed look what you have at your disposal (laughs) that big mac could be an 800 pound spot you're right (laughs) yeah I mean, so, how many athletes are going to weigh 400 pounds like these huge, you know, strongmen and stuff? You're right. Yeah. If they're doing it, like you said, with uh, haggis or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So, right. yeah. Um, you know, I, I just want, when I was reading through this, what surprised me a little was the, um, they actually controlled it for two of the nutrients that usually affect hunger and ad libitum yeah. intake. Right. One is yeah, sodium. Fiber. Because last year we uh, just yeah. last fall we were talking about how some those NASA papers were showing that high sodium diets can increase appetite like thirty percent or something, and obviously they don't want that. And astronauts they can't feed them up there, you know. Um, but or fiber, of course, fiber being so filling. But they were matched for sodium and fiber. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'd like to go back, like you said, Mike, and see um, specifically. Um, which micronutrients might be at play here? Um, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. If I remember right, I mean, it's Kevin Hall's study, and it's a very, very well-controlled study, by far the best-controlled study looking at this that we've ever done. I mean, ungodly expensive. Um, but I think the other part people forget is that, so everybody wants to go, like, I haven't really looked at too much of the Internet on this yet, but I can imagine that it's going to go one extreme or the other. Right, everyone's going to be like, "Oh, it fits your macros is horrible. Never use it now. Look at this data," or "Oh, processed foods. We knew they were like truly evil incarnate. They're horrible." But if you have someone who is an athlete, right, who is exercising, or even someone in the the common uh, average quote unquote person who's exercising, going to the gym, you're probably exercising some type of cognitive override to put yourself in a caloric deficit. So having some processed food every now and then again in under those conditions is probably not going to be that bad, right? But no one in their right mind is going to generate a diet that's a caloric deficit that's based on, you know, Skittles and Ho-Hos for mm-hmm. long-term, you know, compliance. Like, <laughs> you're just not, right? So I think everybody wants to take this condition. And again, they were left there with probably lots of food, ad libitum. They're not under cognitive restraint. They're not told to cut calories or restrict or do anything like that, right? So left to their own devices without a coach and without working with someone, 
kind of matches, you know, what we would think would happen. But if you start adding those things to the equation, it doesn't mean that you can, you know, never have a Snickers bar ever again either. Right, yeah. You know what, too? We're talking about what micronutrients, what vitamins, minerals, well, other than sodium, might be different. But I think there's the other thing when you think about processed food could be all the additives, the colors, the preservatives. I mean, there's been that stuff coming out about how carboxymethylcellulose tends to solubilize the mucosal lining of your intestines and, and change what gets in and what doesn't. You know, so I think there's a lot of the weird additives, too, that you'd see in some of the the ultra-processed stuff, you know. Yeah, and there's a whole bunch of stuff just on visual representation and food cues and using uh, bright-colored plates and how big is your silverware and how big are your plates. It just gives you a visual representation that the food's either bigger or smaller. And Oh, yeah. I want to say it was in Georgia years ago they did the never-ending soup bowl experiment where they had people come in, eat ad libitum amounts of soup, and they had two groups, but they didn't tell them is that in the one group they had a little pump underneath the table that kept refilling the soup bowl from the bottom. Sinister. So you visually never saw it go down. Lo and behold, that group ate more soup. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, and obviously, like you said, in a controlled study like this, I mean, they're well aware of the sensory, like sensory oh, evals. Yeah. There's, you know, there's five-inch thick books on how to do sensory evals and, and yeah. that kind of stuff. But th- actually, the infographic that's floating around with this hall paper, it actually shows that the total calorie intake, it looks like on the ultra-processed diet, was hovered closer to 3,000 and on the other diet, the you know the more whole food diet, it hovered around twenty five hundred. So um, yeah, I see that as an advantage too. So <laughs> yeah, for I mean, for, what for you're our people, to do, right? It's it's not good or bad. It's like well, what's your goal and what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, it does it does sort of beg the question, like the old Phil Stevens, go eat McChickens, you know, um, <laughs> just shovel McChickens because you can buy them by the half dozen for like a buck and a half a piece. <laughs> so. Okay, uh, we're almost out of time, so I'm going to jam through these last two. This one is from labroots.com. Caffeine users are more sensitive to the smell of coffee. This is by Tiffany uh, Dazet or Dazet. It says, new research has provided evidence that frequent coffee drinkers are more sensitive to the smell of coffee. Dr. Lorenzo Stafford, an olfactory expert, right, smelling expert, in the Department of Psychology at the University of Portsmouth, Portsmouth, said, uh, quote, we found that higher the caffeine use, the quicker a person can recognize the odor of coffee. They also discovered that regular caffeine users could detect the odor of a heavily diluted coffee chemical at lower concentrations. Simply stated, the more the study participants craved coffee, uh, the greater their ability to smell it. Uh, so it's they essentially did two experiments, and I, I, we really don't have the time to dig in as far. But one had 62 men, the other had 32 participants. Um, you know, it involved blindfolding. Um, in one of them, it looks like they actually administered because it keeps saying instant coffee, and I've got to think that's like what I do in the lab. They're they're administering this because I don't know why anybody would choose <laughs> to drink lots of instant coffee, but. They took uh, small amounts, people who basically didn't drink it. They took moderate amounts, like one to three and a half cups, or high amounts, which more than four cups of instant coffee. Then they blindfolded them and basically said, can you smell, you know, um, whatever target that we're asking you to smell. Yeah. Uh, And then in the second experiment, they just basically split new participants uh, into people who were either habituated or not. And again, it's something similar that we do in my lab. Uh, And they performed the same odor detection test and they used a non-food odor as a control, but it basically showed that the coffee consumers were more sensitive. Now, these guys go on to say, the findings suggest that changes in the ability to detect smells could be a useful index of drug dependency. It's almost, you know, like, I'm so physically addicted to this, mm-hmm. oh, I can I can catch the, a few molecules down the block, you know? Um, that's... <laughs> That's a pretty sweeping comment, I think, maybe, especially yeah. because the addictive nature of caffeine, it's a little bit different from the addiction, obviously, from other uh, drugs. But anyway, neat stuff that you might. Well, be yeah, and it's I mean, it only makes sense. You're going to be able to you can't smell for something unless you've smelled it before. So these people are very used to this flavor and smell. So, of course, they can easily detect it. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's something they're used to. That's just like, I don't know, if you had a dog tracking someone, they can't track them 
until they smelled them before. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You have to have something you're used to to be able to. Yeah. You know, so you know what you're I know looking the, for. I know the smell of Kansas because I'm used to Kansas. <laughs> yeah. You know? Right. No, that's a, actually that's a good point. You know? It'd be interesting because he's you know they're sort of linking it to drug dependency, but mm-hmm. like if if Phil and I get off a plane, you know, in Kansas, Phil would be like, "Oh, I'm home," and I'd be like, "I don't yes. know where I am." You right. Mean, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I know the smell of apple pie because I like apple pie. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, this this does harken back to what we were, I, I touched on a little bit last week about how a lot of your taste preferences are they're every bit as much or more psychological than they are like taste bud genetics oh, yeah. you know and that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I have one last one because I said I would talk about it. So whole grain consumption may change intestinal serotonin production. Study pr- published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Uh, so that's the premier nutrition journal as far as, far as impact and whatnot. Suggest adults consuming whole grain rye may have lower plasma serotonin levels than people eating a low-fiber wheat bread. This was done at the University of Eastern Finland. And by the way, I got this through IFT.org, the Institute of Food Technologists. It says, for the first four weeks of the study, participants ate six to ten slices a day of low-fiber wheat bread. And then another four weeks, the same amount of whole grain rye bread uh, or wheat bread supplemented with rye fiber. That seems to be the thing here, rye fiber. Um, The consumption of whole grain rye led to, among other things, significantly lower serotonin concentrations. Uh, They also did some research in mice, uh, and the mice receiving rye uh, or wheat bran had significantly lower serotonin in their colon. Now, if if you're like, I don't follow you, Lowry, what are you talking about? Serotonin, yeah, it's a neurotransmitter in your brain, but it's also secreted by the gut. In fact, most serotonin in your body is secreted by the gut. Uh, and the reason that you might care about this is because it's not just sort of a, a feel-good or a sleepy-time neurotransmitter kind of thing. But um, increased blood serotonin, it says here in the study, has been associated with higher blood glucose levels. Uh, and it, it affects gut motility, how fast food moves through you, right? But it's that higher blood glucose thing that's interesting to me. Because oftentimes we say, oh, if it's a whole grain product... It's better for you, but we assume maybe that's the fiber, you know, it moves through your body a little more slowly. But this actually suggests the hormones that your gut secretes, like serotonin, um, are not as high, especially ones that might mess with your carb handling, basically. Mm. So it says serotonin production in the intestines, uh, where the majority of the body serotonin is produced, was lower. So it's, it's just a a mechanism by which whole grains might be a better choice. We're kind of back to that whole food versus refined diet, you know, ultra-processed diet. So rye fiber, interesting stuff. Um, There's one last thing in here I I might share next week, too. It's not very lifting-related, but it's called The Jury is Still Out on How Carb Consumption Affects Cancer. Um, We had Dr. Fred Hatfield on the show years ago. some of us have had personal family experiences with this, you know, like people trying to go on keto-type diets to blunt cancer growth and that kind of stuff. So yeah. I might bring that up next time. But that'll do it. So that's a lot of news for everybody there to chew on for the week. It's a good show. So. All right. See you guys. See you next week. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron 
are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.